0: Morning. I want to invite you to kind of think about something as we begin today in a certain way. It's an experience I think that probably all of us have uh, in some way or another, but it's a good kind of mindset for where the journey might take us today, okay? And this is the exercise, the experience I want you to think about. I want you to think about a time in your life when you had formed an opinion on something, right? Like this is what I think. I've looked at this issue. Or I've looked at this thing. This is what I believe. And then after you have this opinion formed, uh, someone or something comes along that makes you reconsider it, right? We're like, oh, I, you know, maybe I was wrong. I didn't see it that way before. That's new information, or I see it in a different light, and maybe I need to reconsider it. But then the third step is when you go back and see it again. And you're like, no, no, I was right in the first place, <laughs> right? It's like. This is my opinion. Maybe I need to reconsider it. No. No, I don't. I was, how I saw it in the beginning was actually right. I'm not changing my mind on that. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was finishing eighth grade, the high school that I went to, uh, each eighth grader had to meet with a guidance counselor to get you ready for high school. And you talked about sort of your thoughts and your plans and your likes and dislikes and everything else. And so this guidance counselor was talking to me and she said, uh, you know, what are the subjects that you like? And I'm like, I like uh, reading and I like English and I like literature and I like history and I like these things. Uh, And she said, what do you not like? And I'm like, everything else, like uh, science and math and science and math. And then there's science and math. And I don't like any of those, uh, the literature and the history and all that. And she goes, really? And she was a really dynamic person. She goes, well, I want you to think about that. Because you know we are in a day and age when technology is changing all the time, and, and science is changing things all the time, and our understanding of the world, and how we interact with it, and what's possible through technology. And math makes that happen, and science makes that happen. And so she said, you know, do you want to be on the forefront of things? Because these are the world changers. Every engineer in here right now, their heart is like going. They're like, yes, this is it. They're like, do you want to be on the forefront of what's taking place in our world and creating all this stuff? And I'm like, well, I'm 14. I don't really know. But. <laughs> Sure. I mean, if, if I have to choose do I want to be like a world changer or not, I guess yeah, sometimes. Uh, so yeah. And she goes, well, math and science is where it's at. And you've got to understand that and what, how things are forming. And so I had that opinion. And then this new voice comes along. And I'm like, yeah. That makes a ton of sense. I need to I need to rethink that. And maybe my whole issue has been that I just didn't see the application of it, and now I do. And I you know I do want to be a world changer in some kind of ways. I don't really know what that means, but I'm gonna try and and see what this is. And so I kind of left with a different mentality. It's like I I'm gonna really apply myself to this. And I had that mentality over the summer. I remember telling my parents, it's like listen, math and science. I mean I get it now. I see the potential. I see where we're gonna go. Go into the class in ninth grade, starting high school. Have my textbook. I've I got my notebook, I've got my pens, I got, you know, everything ready to go, and then it took like three and a half minutes in the class, we are like, nope, I don't like it. <laughs> right? Like that moment when you're going, this is what I thought, then you reconsider and there's like, nope, what I thought in the beginning was right. Maybe you experienced that this week. If you, like me, are a fan of the NBA playoffs, um, we got to see this in action this week, for example. The Golden State Warriors are playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. Every expert who is paid that I can find, and then those of us like me who are experts in our own minds and hearts, even though no one pays us for our opinion on this, would tell you that the Golden State Warriors are most likely going to win this uh, NBA uh, championship, and they should win it pretty easily. right? And the reason for that is, is that overall their team is just clearly superior to the Cavs, except for, one player, LeBron James. And LeBron James, who uh, is just playing at a different level than anybody right now, has taken his, his very average team around him to the finals. It's amazing that they've gotten there, but they, no matter how good he is, he cannot compensate against Golden State for the sort of mediocrity of the team around him, right? That's what the experts think, that's what I think, that was my opinion. Then you go into game one, and if you watched it on Thursday night, and game two is tonight, uh, you know where I'll be at eight o'clock. Game uh, game one, uh, for 47 minutes and 55 seconds, it was like, I think we're wrong right? LeBron played at such a level, and his, other, his teammates weren't amazing, but they were good enough, and Cleveland was either in the game or winning. And, and for 47 minutes and 55 seconds, like, I don't know, maybe we need to reconsider this. This could really happen. Except the problem is, is an NBA game is 48 minutes, not 47 minutes and 55 seconds. If you watch the game, the last five seconds of the game, LeBron's teammates managed to blow that game in like a mind-altering kind of way. It was so bad watching the last five minutes. And so in the end, you're like, no, they can't win, right? It's like, this was my opinion. Golden State's gonna win. Then you're watching the game going, I don't know. Maybe I was wrong. This could like all happen. And then in the end, you're like, no, no. They're not gonna win. You know what I'm talking okay, about? That's what I'm talking about. This, oh, maybe I'm wrong. No, I was right in the beginning. The reason I'd like you to think about that is because if we're not careful, that could happen to us today. This journey we're on through the book of Romans, I know for some of us might have opened up different things as we've gone chapter by chapter through this book. I had an email that I think sums that up two weeks ago. It was an email by a member of our community who wrote and said, I got to be honest with you. When you said that we're going to spend 16 weeks going through the book of Romans this summer, I was like so so not excited about this like this is going to be boring this is going to be really dry and she said my sense of Romans is like it's very legalistic and very like kind of just getting into the minutia and the laws and the rules and she goes this these first five chapters we've been looking this is beautiful she and the word she goes this is like a love letter from God to the world and it's just changed my perspective on this right she was here and maybe you were here and other people here it's like oh I don't know what I think about this and going through a book and it's like Romans and oh it sounds heavy and then maybe in these first five chapters like wow we're talking about the grace of God and the love of God and how God's love is overwhelming and how it justifies us and how when we when God sees us through faith we are credited with the righteousness of his son what an amazing concept it changes my perspective on this well starting today in chapter six you might go yep this was what I was waiting for right <laughs> this was what from the beginning I knew I didn't like about this thing and it just took a you kind of got me open for a minute and now no So I want to acknowledge that at the beginning and I want you to invite you to stick with us because this is where Paul starts to transition and start using words like sin and the law and righteousness. And if we're not careful, we can separate this teaching from the first five chapters and forget that they're there. But I want us to try to hold this together, okay? This is a scripture passage we're going to look at today. It's Romans 6. It's kind of selected verses 1 through 4 and then 12 through 14. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us all today. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but now present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, no matter what we think or doubt or believe, that we would encounter you through your word and that you would lead and guide us all that we might have life and have it abundantly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So friends, this is the start of the teaching, and it continues in not just chapter 6, but in chapter 7 and chapters 8, where Paul's going to really start getting into this sense of the law and, and righteousness and sin and how we live. And as I said, there's going to be a part of us that when we hear that, that's gonna, that might go, ugh. Uh, This is the stuff I don't like. And if you don't feel that way, you probably know people who feel that way. If you don't know people who feel that way, your life may be in too much of a bubble because this is how the vast majority of the world sees Christianity. The vast majority of the world sees Christianity as this place where it's like, here they come quoting their rules and quoting their laws and using them as weapons and everything else, and this is what I'm not interested in, right? This is kind of what I thought Then I was a little bit open because it was like this whole thing of love and grace and God's love and it's amazing and how I'm credited with righteousness and this gets me back to what I thought. All right? Now, when we hear that or when we acknowledge that truth of how this is how we're seen, there's a piece of us that has to remember the first couple of chapters of Romans where Paul says that when we see what's wrong in the world, we have to think confessionally. Remember, he said that in the beginning. He said that uh, in in the beginning of chapter two, that that when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's going to be a piece of us that's going to look at the world and go, yeah, but that's not how the world's supposed to work. And that's so we look in our neighborhoods, or we look in our families, or we look in uh, our city, or our country, or our world, and we're like, that's not how it's supposed to be. And the most natural human reaction when we see things that are wrong is to point the finger of blame. Liberals do this, conservatives do this, Democrats, Republicans, and Democrats, we all do this, right? We see what's wrong with the world, and then we're like, and they're the problem. They're the ones who are causing this. And the ones causing the problem are not the people who, who think like us or vote like us or get their news from the same sources that we do, right? It's always the other. The other is the problem. So one side lobs hand grenades at the other, the other side lobs hand grenades back, and we just go back and forth. And Paul says that that is not something that is new in this political era. This is human nature, to deflect sin, to place blame on someone else. And what he says is, in chapter 2, is that when we see what's wrong, he says that as Christians, our first response needs to be, how have I contributed to this? So that I am a part of the brokenness that's around me. It's not just other people, and it's not just systems and governments and everything else. So when I see injustice, or when I see consumerism, or when I see gossip, or when I see people who are left out while others are, and have their their sense of belonging destroyed, I have to ask myself, how have I been a contributor to this? How am I a part of what I've seen here? Not that it's all me, but that I am a piece of this. So when we say that this starts to get into the realm where people are going to go, oh, I don't, this is the stuff I don't like as Christians and as as the church, we have to at least consider confessionally, Paul's saying, how we've been a part of that. And the fact is, friends, is this, is that the the fact is, is that there have been elements of the church and of Christianity that have used Bible verses, especially around the idea of righteousness, like weapons. They have used them like weapons to divide those who get it from those who don't, in their eyes. Now, and it's interesting the subjects we fight about, right? It's not the stuff Jesus talked a lot about, like financial generosity, right? Everyone's like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Like, I don't, I don't, don't get into my business on that. We're going to pick another more sensational issue that is more on the fringes, and that's the one. And then we're going to take some verses out, and we are going to use them like a weapon, and it is going to divide those from us, the clean from the not. And at our worst, we're even going to act like Romans 1 through 5 doesn't exist, Because what we're going to say is, yeah, there's this stuff about justification by faith and everything else, and you've been credited with righteousness, but if you were really doing things the right way and knowing God and loving God and in relation with God, you wouldn't make this mistake. So if you keep doing this, or if you don't see this the right way, it might call into question, is your relationship with God real or valid or right or strong enough? we have been contributors to that idea. It's not just the media, it's not just the people on the other side who do this. I'm not saying it's all us, but we have to think confessionally about where we have been associated with that, maybe even where we've participated in it. And so people see this and they're like all oh, the rules and now who's in or out, I saw an interesting video recently. It was a video of a a Veritas Forum, a conversation about truth. And this was a particular Veritas Forum took Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. We've read some stuff here uh, by him. And uh, a reporter who was very clear that he's not a person of faith and not a Christian. And And the reporter was asking Tim Keller questions about the Christian worldview about truth. And he was going through what Romans 1-5 through is about. He said, we're saved by faith, we are credited with the righteousness of God, this amazing love and grace of Jesus Christ. And uh, and this is good news and this is exciting. And then the reporter was waiting to kind of get into this stuff, the Romans 6 stuff. And he started asking Tim Keller about current events. He's like, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this? And what do you think about this? And Tim Keller was going, well, this is how I understand this issue. And this is how I think about this. And this is how I approach it. And the reporter said, so what you're saying is, is that there's all this love stuff at the beginning. But if people aren't following the rules the way you say so, then they're not going to go to heaven. And Tim Keller did what you and I as Christians need to do. And he said, no, 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 no. We need to go back and understand that this is about a relationship with God and that what we believe is that salvation is given by grace through faith and there is nothing we can do to add to that and there's nothing we can do to take away from it it's not that following rules gets you into heaven he said it's about grace that we're saved. And so breaking a rule or breaking a law doesn't disqualify you from heaven. Grace and God's love are that big that, and that Christianity is about more than punching your ticket to the great by and by. That the law and the rules and the, the, the ideas of righteousness are not given so that we figure out who really gets to heaven and who doesn't. Who's really clean and who's not. Who's really righteous and who's not. Yeah, we've been contributors to that narrative. But the the law is given to us so that we can live with God in the here and now. I want to say that again because it's important. At the core of our faith is that we are a faith about relationship relationship with God and relationship with each other. And as human beings, we are designed that relationships are where we truly find meaning. If you are in a good relationship, if your relationships around you and your family, your friendships are healthy, it is amazing how much joy you can have, even if things are hard in your career or something else. And when things are wrong, it doesn't matter how great your resume is. If your relationships are struggling, it's like nothing's quite right. We are at our core relational beings. It's how we've been designed. And that the rules and the law that Paul's going to start getting into now are not meant as qualifiers and litmus tests of righteousness to receive salvation. We can't forget Romans 1 through 5. But rather these laws, this rule that we're going to talk about today and next week and the week after are really going more and more detailed. How do you live in that now? How do you follow Jesus now? What are the decisions you make? How do you do this on a daily basis? What are the values that go into those decisions? That it's around relationship. The language that was used in Romans 6 is relational language. We are baptized into Christ. We live in Christ. We die with Christ to sin and we rise in Christ to something new. Paul's saying this is still about relationship. The first five chapters about love and grace weren't just about a preamble to now the checklist of righteousness comes. But think about it, and this is really important, every relationship, if we are relational beings, has a certain framework, certain values, that are needed to live into and maintain if that relationship's gonna stay good over time. Friendships work that way. You do certain things, you make values in certain ways, you have certain experience together, the friendship grows. If you don't, the friendship suffers. There are certain things in your family, and every family is a little bit unique, where it's like, this is kind of how we do things, and these are the values with which we make decisions, and this is how we do things openly and honestly. And as we do those things together, and as we share, and as we're honest with each other, the connections grow, and the relationship grows. But the moment we start telling lies, or deceiving, or keeping things from each other, or everything else, it's not that someone's coming out and throwing a penalty flag on us going, you broke the rules. It's about the relationship suffers. And so what the law is trying to do, Paul says, is this is what a with God life looks like. This is how you live daily in that relationship of love, not how you have a checklist of righteousness. You could use any relationship to make this point, but I'm going to use the one of marriage. One of the great... Opportunities. One of the great gifts I have as a pastor is that I get to officiate weddings. I got to do this for a wonderful wedding just a few weeks ago. It's a great gift to me. I love it. It's one of my favorite things I get to do. I love getting to know the couple beforehand. I love meeting with them. I love hearing about the things that, that, that they do and the things that they love and the things that they struggle with and the hopes they have and the dreams, the stuff they do to really connect. There's times in those meetings where I'm like, that's a great idea. I should be thinking about that, right? Like my marriage would work better if I thought about things that way. So it's like this whole thing where, where uh, stuff's amazing. And then I love being a part of the ceremony. I love being there and getting to talk with people about it. But what, the reason we do that, premarital counseling, the reason we have uh, vows that we make, the reason that we do all this is because what we're saying is there's a framework for how a marriage works. There are rules, so to speak for how a marriage works. Now, no one goes into it for that, right? I have never been a part of a wedding where when you're like, why are you getting married, someone sat there and was like, I just need more rules in my life, right? It's like, I just need a little more structure, and if I have to commit to her, it gives me more structure. So. That's it. No one does it for the rules. No one. And you shouldn't. You do it because this, there's this uh, connection and there's joy. And it's like life is better off. And I thought I knew life and then I didn't know life. And I realized because I met this person and life makes sense now. And I have this you know, joy in my heart and blah, blah, blah. And it's all real and all good and everything else. But, But what happens in a marriage is that you need more than just saying, you're in love, so just be in love. That doesn't work. That's not, a, can't we just be loving? Well, no. If any of you have been married for more than four hours, you know that you'll feel it one minute and you might not feel it the next. It would be a disservice to sit up there and be like, I don't know how it works, just, just go love somebody. I don't know, you're in love, just keep feeling it. That, that doesn't work. And so what we do is we say there's vows that we're going to take, there's a framework, there's, there's rules if you want to talk about it that way, not that are meant to kind of bring legalism into your marriage, but are meant to provide a framework for this is how you have a joyful marriage. So that your wedding day is not the best day you have together, but that actually can get better after that, but it's gonna involve certain things. It's gonna involve things like loving each other and serving each other. It's gonna involve doing that in action over and over and over again. It's gonna be about forgiveness and forgiving one another and asking forgiveness when we need to. It's about not keeping score with each other, living in a covenant relationship, rather than always saying who's up and who's down and I get points for this and you take away points for that. Because in that system, every individual in the relationship always wins and the other one's a loser because we keep score differently and we award points differently for different things. And so what we do is we say that there is this framework, this system that if you live this way, If you kind of have these values and make decisions like this, your marriage can actually get better after your wedding day. It's not just about a wedding, it's about a marriage. And if you don't, chances are, it's gonna get harder and harder and harder. God didn't give us these rules of loving and serving and forgiving and reconciling to create systems and rules, but the rules and the systems and the values exist for the relationship to flourish. Every relationship works that way, everyone, including our relationship with God. Paul is assuming we will remember Romans 1 through 5 of this love that is overwhelming to us that we sing about and we worship about, but he is saying, here's the framework in chapter 6, 7, and 8 for how you live in that each and every, how do you make decisions, what do you pay attention to, and what values drive you. So, how do we think about that here? How do we even begin to think about that this week? Well, again, we're going to go into more details over the next couple of weeks. But today, from like a 30,000-foot view, I want to take that for how we do that here at Covenant, just for the last couple of minutes. We're going to be up a phrase on the, on the screens, our vision statement. I hope that you have heard it or seen it or at least sounds vaguely familiar at some level. What do we do here at Covenant? We don't just look and be like, yeah, just go follow Jesus. Good luck with that. What we say is that we are a community that's encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play, which I think is a great statement. Um, uh, I don't know if all of you think it's a great statement. Uh, I know at least the session thought it was a great statement at the time. If you don't, we we just want you to bury that deep down inside and not talk about it again. We think this is a great statement that talks about not just going, hey, just go love God, which is not anything that can carry you forward, but that we are what? We're a community encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. We're not following the great spirit in the sky. We're not just following our warm, fuzzy feelings. We're following a person. We're following Jesus. We're not just following blind religious dogma. We're following Jesus. Relationship is at the core of what we're about, but we don't just worship Jesus alone, right? It's easy to like kind of turn faith into like Jesus is my boyfriend sort of thing, right? It's like he just, I love my Jesus and my Jesus loves me. And we just have all these great feelings. We encourage one another. We follow Jesus in community. We we do so together. Where? Wherever we live, work, and play. Why? That there is an actual purpose to why we live. That you exist in this world for more than just going to church and having a job and advancing in your career and making a good salary and having a perfect family and having the right social networks and getting into the right clubs and your kids going to the right schools and then them going to the right schools and just like uh, repeating the pattern over again. Life is about more than that so that when we go into our neighborhoods, when we go to our work, when we go to where we hang out and play, there is a purpose to that. We're saying you are here for a reason. That the action is not what takes place on this campus, but this campus is a place to send you out, to live deliberately in this world, to stand for something and have your life count. This is what we say we're about. Well, how do you do that? There's three things that we talk about that we see in the scriptures as every follower of Jesus who comes alive in these ways, a pattern that they follow. We see it in Mark chapter three. We see it in the uh, book of Luke. There's three different um, behaviors that you see over and over again. Again, it's not a mystery. Just go do this. There's, There's a framework of how we live. So the first thing we talk about is this. We talk about the need to live in solitude. We talked about this last fall every again and again and again again this is nothing new we've talked about this you see Jesus over and over again in the gospels pulling back from the crowds and going off to pray and spend time with god how important that is how important that the big days of jesus life and his ministry almost always begin in prayer by himself and the importance for you and i to live in this world in a way where we are doing the same thing because if you're like me this is the easiest thing to push aside because we're just so busy or our phones are just blowing up all the time and we have to respond but where are those moments where we stop and say and hear the voice of God through Scripture and through prayer that says, you are my beloved? That email I received that said, the book of Romans is like a love letter. They were very clear, and I appreciated their clarity on this. They weren't praising the sermons, and I was, I was grateful for that. It's good for us not to get too big of a head about any of this stuff. But what they said is, I'm doing what was asked, and I'm reading a chap- the chapter we're in that week, and I'm reading it every day. Just letting the Scripture wash over me. It takes five minutes just to do it. But it's this way that by themselves, they're just reading the chapter, hearing the scriptures and letting the love of God flow over them. How are you praying? How are you going? Maybe, you know, and you should have some ideas about this. Uh, Go on a prayer walk this week rather than praying in your room. Keep a journal this week. How do you take these practices of solitude and hearing the voice of God that says to you and I, you are my beloved. Because friends, no matter who you are this week, you're going to hear a lot of messages that tell you what you're worth and what you're not worth. Where you find meaning and where meaning is taken away and you feel like you don't count. And the most important thing we can do is to be reminded again and again of the voice of God that says, you are more loved and valued than you will ever be. Imagine, and there is no success in this world that can add to that value, and there is no failure that can take away from the value you have. You have that kind of worth. It's in solitude that we hear that voice whisper to us again. But solitude is not the only practice we do that solitude that Jesus then returns, we see in the Gospels, and he then starts interacting with people. And so, the second thing we talk about is community that we need to live in community with other people, that we encourage one another. Research shows us that that the kind of community we need is not just like people to be friends with on uh, Facebook or Instagram, it's not just people to go to concerts with, it's not just people to go to sporting events with. Research shows that people flourish when they are in intentional relationships of truth-telling. That's the kind of community we're going for. Where is it that people speak the truth into your life and they welcome you seeking to do the same? Where is it that when you are beaten up and feel worthless and feel like you have nothing to give or feel that you have not developed to your full potential, where is that place? Where are the voices of folks who come along and say, you are loved, you are valued, You have not been abandoned by God. We are Easter resurrection people and God will show up in this again. And I am praying for you and I am standing with you in this and I love you in this and I am walking with you in this. We all need those voices. We also need those voices of truth where we are, when we are in conflict of people who love us enough to go, you're really kind of acting like a jerk right now, right? Like I love you enough to say, why did you think that was a good response? These are not just about folks to hang out with. It's about where do we have a community of people where we seek truth together. And finally, we say that the solitude and community leads to service, that Jesus then lastly sends people out, and he does so himself to go out and to find places of brokenness in the world and to serve those places. There are places in our neighborhoods There are people in our neighborhoods who are lonely. There are people in their neighborhoods who are desperate. There are people in our own neighborhoods, I don't care what zip code you live in, who are hurting and lost, and it's about who's going to be the one to walk across the street and knock on the door and invite them to dinner. Who's going to be the one to pray and to lift up? Who's going to be the one to step out of their comfort zone going, God, I just need more of you, and to realize that where you might most experience God is when you walk out seeking to love and to serve someone else. And this is the pattern over and over and over again. What we don't say here at Covenant is just go love God. What we say is we want to be a part of this kind of community and these are the actions we see in Scripture. And this might start sounding like rules, but it's not. It's an invitation for how our relationship with God flourishes. And if we say no to it, the people we are most hearting are ourselves and then through us those around us who we're closest to. It's not a mystery and it's not blind legalism that we're following, but there is a framework of how we choose to spend our time that draws us towards the relationship we were meant to or takes us away from that.